Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Uh, so we got Justin Dobbs with us today. How are you doing, Justin? Doing well, thank God. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Good to see you. And Scott Smelzer, how are you today, Scott? Doing okay. All right, good. Um, so uh, this week, we're going to kind of continue our discussion that we left off with a couple weeks ago, talking about the spirit and miraculous gifts and the purpose of miracles and those sorts of things. And um, I don't know, maybe it'd be helpful if we just kind of quickly summarized for any new viewers to this discussion, where we kind of left off a couple weeks ago, and then we could pick up uh, where, where we left off. So Scott, do you want to quickly just kind of summarize some of the ideas we talked about? Um, I'm not sure I was here two weeks ago. I think I was. <laughs> <laughs> you remember better than me. <laughs> he, he laterals to this guy. Yeah. Um, you were, and you had some really great slides to share from First Corinthians 13. Um, but the idea is we're, we're looking at the question. We've been asked questions recently about uh, miracles today. And does the spirit still uh, work today? And our answer, uh, I think the biblical answer is, yes, the spirit does still work today. However, miracles are a work of the past. They were used to establish authority, to reveal God's will. Uh, however, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, demands that prophecies and knowledge and tongues, they all cease for something that is perfect remains. Uh, Acts 8 reveals that the miraculous gifts were passed on through laying on the apostles' hands. And because there aren't any apostles anymore, uh, then there's one more generation that, that uh, experienced those miraculous gifts, and then they ceased to be. And actually, I have a note in my Bible um, that I wrote some time ago reading some of the uh, early Christians and late 4th century uh, Christian by the name of Chrysostom in uh, commenting on 1 Corinthians 12 said, the whole place is very obscure. Uh, so a Christian in, in the late fourth century had no experience with miraculous gifts. Um, so we're, we're looking at the spirit still working today, but not through direct inspired revelation. So I think that's kind of mm -hmm. what we covered last time. Yeah. Yeah. And go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. He has some charts. He's about to lead us through. But before I do that, I'd like to bring up an argument in a verse that people often bring up. I just want to throw it out, have you guys respond to it, and we'll pretty quickly get to uh, Jonathan's charts. Because I, there's two points to consider from this. Uh, when I'm talking Pentecostals, a passage they will often cite is from Hebrews 13. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Therefore, if yesterday people were speaking in tongues and he, making the blind see and cleansing lepers, then today that has to be happening because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. How would you guys respond to that? Is Jesus, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant, but is, is Jesus still a baby? Yeah. And is, I mean, Jesus, is Jesus still on the cross? Yeah. Is, is, is he still on the earth? Um, so there are some things which were once for all, and uh, the atonement was once Jesus died on the cross at one point in history. That doesn't mean he's retired. Mm -hmm. He's still our great high priest. Likewise with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not doing everything today the Holy Spirit did in the first century. 
that doesn't mean he's retired. We got Roman Sage, for example. Um, but uh, just a good question that I think is helpful on that. But people think the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing today he did in the first century. In the first century, was he giving inspired scriptures in scripture for the church? Yeah. yeah. Who has loose leaf Bible that they're still adding books to? <laughs> Not I. <laughs> All right, Jonathan, go ahead, please. Yeah, so if, if that's the case, if you know the primary way that Christians in the first century were able to discover what God's will was, what his message was, was through miracles from the apostles and, and various others that the apostles laid their hands on, if that's no longer happening, then how do we, 2,000 years later, um, know what God's will is? So I think it'd probably be helpful if first we just discuss really quickly some examples and some, some wrong ways of coming to a conclusion about God's will, different ways that we can be misled away from what God's truth is. And it's actually really interesting to me that God's word records various different stories or examples of people that were trying to figure out God's will or to be pleasing to God, but fell short of that in various different ways. So I, I had a list and I, I can't really put this, uh, this chart up because it has too many. Well, actually, I think I can. Um, <laughs> It has, it has too many, um, uh, can you guys see that? Yes. Is that good now? Okay. Um, the, the chart, if I activate it, it has too many uh, animations in it, so it'll take too long. Um, but you can just look at this, at this list, and we'll just kind of briefly summarize some of these different things of different ways that we can fall short of God's will. There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, about King David after he's uh, ascended to the throne. He's finally... Uh, you know, God's anointed king in its full-fledged sense after he was anointed in 1 Samuel. And he starts to realize that he has this really nice house and God is living in a tent and it doesn't sit well with David. He's like, if I have this really nice palace, but God is living in a tent, that seems backwards. I need to build God a better house. And uh, he actually goes and talks to one of God's prophets, Samuel, at that time, and uh, tells that to Samuel, that what his intentions are and that he, he wants to build God a house. And Samuel tells him, go ahead, go, go do everything that's in your heart. Um, and then later that night, God comes to Samuel and says, and I'm paraphrasing, um, no, I don't want that. <laughs> um, you, you assumed that that's what I wanted, but I don't want David to build me a house. In fact, his son is the one that I want to build the house for me, but David is not going to be that guy. And so the, a dangerous place that we can get to, looking at that example of David, if we want to figure out what God's will is, you know what, it, it sounds good to me, and so God must like it too. Or just assuming that we, we know what God wants based on our preferences. That's not helpful in you know regular rela relationships anyway. If I lived my marriage, assuming that everything that I like is what my wife likes, um, I would start getting in trouble because she... She likes things differently than I do. And I need to be aware of those and talk to her about those. And it's the same thing with our relationship with God. We can't just assume I like it sounds good to me. So God must like it too. And from that story specifically, even the most godly people can fall in that way. You can't just assume based on years of experience, you know, I've got this whole God thing figured out. We still need to make sure that we're checking with him what he wants and what he desires and not even after years of experience. Scott. I think some people get the feeling that they are so spiritually minded that they, me and God are really close. I know what he would want. 
and this is an example here. You've got King David who wrote Psalms, and you got Nathan the prophet. They're both thinking, yeah. God says, I didn't ask for that. Just. In fact, we might say that they knew rightly what God wanted to some degree. Uh, later in 1 Kings 8, um, it's revealed that God thought, hey, it was good that it was in your heart to do this, 1 Kings 8, 18. Uh, so David was on the right track. You know, God had plans for a temple, but it just wasn't the way that God had had planned. So we, we can kind of, you know, be on the same wavelength with God, but it's still too much to assume that we know how God wants to do it, the methods he wants to use. That's not right. Yeah, so um, uh, another one, and we won't hit all of these, but I have these up on the on the screen. Um, another one that's really interesting is, um, and I think prevalent today, is in Acts 18. Um, I want to actually uh, kind of read a little bit here, um, because I think one verse in particular uh, is really interesting. Of uh, Some people that are misled and actually leads to a really big problem that Paul has to kind of resolve in Acts 19. Uh, at the end of Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to a character named Apollos, who we've talked about a few different times on the show. And just listen to how Apollos is, Apollos is described in Acts 18, verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Um, if you just have that kind of, you know, bio about Apollos, uh, what would you assume about him and his ability to communicate God's truth effectively? I wish I could communicate truth as effectively as Apollos did. Yeah, yeah, he's he's eloquent, so he's he's good at communication, good at speech. Um, he's competent in the scriptures, which is more important. Uh, he, he knows God's word. He's, he's associated himself with God's word. Uh, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He knows a lot about Jesus. Um, but he's, he's missing one thing that it mentions at the end of verse 25. He only knew of the baptism of John, the baptism prior to Jesus's resurrection and the great commission and Jesus sending out his apostles to baptize them in his name. And what that actually leads to is Apollos incorrectly teaching some people in the city of Ephesus about baptism. And whenever Paul gets to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, um, they don't even know about the Holy Spirit, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, interesting. We're discussing the work of the Spirit mm -hmm. and, and how the right. Spirit works. They don't even know that the Holy Spirit is, is a, a being. Um, and so Paul really has to backtrack and do a lot of uh, work to get people back to the truth and understanding Jesus and their need for Jesus and his baptism. Um, and those people, you know, listen to Paul and are baptized and, and everything works out, you know, well. But, you know, if Paul hadn't come to Ephesus, um, there would be a group of people that are misinformed and misdirected because they listened to somebody else that was misinformed and misdirected. And somebody that was a leader and a, and a prominent individual, I'm sure, in the faith, in, in the church. You've got Apollos, who's a really good guy, and he's not being malicious about anything or trying to be deceitful. He's just misinformed. And so we need to be careful that when we're trying to figure out God's will, um, God has given a lot of blessings for us to be able to figure that out and work together, different men and women in the church that are really competent and capable teachers that know God really well. And those are really helpful resources to use 
but men are fallible um, always. And so we need to always check what men say with what God's word says before making our final conclusion. And Apollos, thankfully, at the end of that chapter, he's corrected and it looks like receives that correction well. And then he's able to go to various other places and speak God's word more accurately uh, after Aquila and Priscilla kind of correct him in that. But, but misled church leaders, even well-studied, eloquent, sincere, successful people can say the wrong things. Um, they are not the standard, no matter how experienced or well-spoken they are. Um, you guys have thoughts about that? I think that's just, that's really um, practical. Um, my mind immediately goes to um, leaders in churches where there are false doctrines being taught and um, just unbiblical practices and thousands and thousands of people being led astray. Um, however, this shows up in my life where there are, there are people, men and women that I respect a great deal. Um, you know, there, there are the the Dale Smelsers and the Gary Fishers, and I'm throwing out a bunch of names that you know maybe some of our listeners don't even know, but these are people that if, if they say something, I take it seriously. Um, but there need to be occasions where they say things that I, I don't agree with. Uh, and I, I mean that there need to be occasions, uh, either because I'm not yet where they are, or I don't need to go where they are because I'm looking at the Bible and that's the authority. And so it, it does kind of bother me a little bit when, you know, with brethren and we start quoting other brethren as though they're an authority. Uh, well, brother so-and-so says this, brother so-and-so, he made this point. I, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and I, I may appreciate what they said and they may have said it like an Apollos said it. And I wish I could say it the way they said it, but they're not the authority. And I really hope that, um, that no one's ever going to quote me and say, you know, Justin said this, and that's the authority. Um, that just, that sends shivers up my spine. Uh, we want to be listening to the word, listening to the Lord and obeying him. It's the Lord's church. It's not our church. Uh, and people can be mistaken. Uh, and some people aren't just honestly mistaken. They are mistaken and are trying to deceive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I just want to hit a, a couple more of these. And if you guys see on that list, or think of any other examples, things you want to talk about. Um, I th think at least two more of these are, are pretty important for us to look at. Um, I skipped over that the second bullet there. There are three references in 1 Samuel um, that are similar in nature, but different kind of situations. Um, so I'll just look at the one in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23 and verse 7, King Saul is still king, and he's still seated on the throne, although David has been anointed as the king to follow him. Uh, and Saul finds out that David is the new anointed king. He's seeking to kill him. He's chasing him through, uh, you know, the country, trying to find him. And David runs into the city of Keilah to hide from Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel 23, verse 7, uh, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut him in, himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So what Saul is saying is, finally, um, this, this is exactly the situation I'm looking for. God must want me to kill David and kind of squelch this uprising um, because, I mean, it, it couldn't have played out any better. Uh, David has trapped himself in this city. I've cornered him. You read the rest of 1 Samuel 23 and you find out, no, God did not give David <laughs> into Saul's hands. Uh, yes, God changed his mind. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. He escapes, and it's not God's will that Saul would kill David. And David faces similar kinds of situations in chapter 24 and chapter 26, where Saul, it looks like, is just kind of served up on a silver platter to David. You've got the king that's trying to kill you, and uh, he has two opportunities to kill Saul back. Um, and David's comrades are saying, David, look, God's given you Saul into his hands. Uh, it, it couldn't have lined up any better. Um, David has the foresight to be able to realize, no, that's not the case. Um, I'm not going to raise up my hand against the Lord's anointed. And just because there are these really favorable circumstances doesn't mean that that's what God wants me to do. That can be a really dangerous thing in our lives, too. If it seems like, you know, everything is just lining up to work out in this way, assuming that that means God wants me to do that. Um, and there are probably a lot of different applications that we could think of that. But I think it's helpful to see, you know, Saul was wrong. David's men were wrong. And assuming that it was God's will for something to happen because it was going to be really easy for that thing to be accomplished. Um, that's not always true. In fact, often the opposite is true. Um, the more difficult path tends to get us closer to God's will, although that's not a good way of deciphering what God's will is either. So you guys have thoughts, Justin, you had your hand up. Well, on, on that, uh, sometimes it's favorable circumstances that we think, oh, well, obviously God's opening a door. Um, and I've heard someone say, you know, some open doors lead to elevator shafts. Uh, and sometimes God wants us to break through a door. But uh, I remember studying with a guy once, and it wasn't a favorable circumstance. It was an unfavorable circumstance that he thought was revealing God's will to him. See, he had married a girl that he thought it was God's will for him to marry. And he just determined that by his feelings and the circumstances of that. And, and it was God's will for him to marry. But now he felt like he was leaving her behind spiritually i'm putting that in quotes um and that he, he had surpassed her and that it really wasn't god's will for him to be married to her anymore which in his way of thinking would have made it disobedient to god for him to stay married to her which is totally violating god's revealed will in the scriptures so it's circumstances that were that are directing that kind of thinking and it can be favorable circumstances or unfavorable circumstances but we think we've got our our finger on the situation because we're viewing it in some kind of selfish way we think it's a spiritual way but really it's a self-directed uh revelation which is terrible uh, scott you had a thought i think you're muted scott sorry i forgot i was muted i was just saying that's it lots of times it's a selfish thing god uh, let me give a side point of this so this is obvious joseph smith knew what he was doing but if you go to a mormon church um and you watch them take the lord's supper it's water they take water instead of the good juice and it's because of a revelation that joseph got that says it doesn't matter what you can use you can use water if you read in history of the church by joseph smith he tells you the background that day of the revelation joseph smith by the way was a communist he's he's not buying what he's saying he's straight up on ours but it illustrates consciously what other people are doing subconsciously just just said so he started this church he was looking to make money on selling the book of mormon that work it doesn't work out but he's got this church started he's at a farmhouse and some of the people say hey we ought to take communion they don't have any uh fruit of the vine so joseph's gonna have to walk all the way to a store or town and he headed out knowing he's a con artist and he, he's all off 
he started a bogus religion. And then directly he comes, he said, I had not gotten very far when I received this revelation from the Lord. Verily, verily, thus saith the Lord to my servant Joseph Smith, it matters not what you use, you may use water. <laughs> and he knew what he was doing. But a lot of people like Justin Jill just illustrated it's still the same thing. It's selfishness. What they want, they decide is what God wants. That's upside down. Yeah. And and again, and, if you link this with what Jonathan you said earlier from Second Samuel seven, it may even be that we want good things. I mean, I think Joseph Smith in that situation just wanted not to take a long walk. Um, or the guy in my illustration just wanted his life to be easier and more comfortable and more pleasurable for himself and not trying to do the hard things that lead to real growth. Um, but sometimes we want good things, but we're not going about it God's way, just like David wanted a good thing in building God a house, but God had a plan for that. And when we disrupt God's plan, uh, we're working against him, kind of like Abraham uh, and, and Hagar. You know, we're, we're, we're going against God's will. Um, Jonathan, you had another thought there? Yeah, that, that leads into uh, another one of these biblical examples. Um, in, in Second Kings, uh, we have the story of Naaman. Um, and maybe kind of an offshoot of what we just discussed, there's this idea of like, you know, I have, I have my expectations of what I think God should be. And if he is not those, God must be wrong. <laughs> um, and that's essentially what Naaman does in Second Kings chapter five. He's, he's a leprous man and he comes to Israel to be healed by the prophet uh, Elisha, who's in Israel. And he comes to Elisha's house and Elisha doesn't even come outside. Um, he sends his servant outside to tell him to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And in Second Samuel chapter five, in verse 11, it says, Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would come out and surely uh, stand and call upon the name of his, the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And then in, in verse 12 and following, he has like, isn't this a better option? Isn't that a better option? But instead he said, go to the Jordan River. But you see, Naaman's response is anger because he had this idea of what was going to happen. And when what he thought was going to happen didn't happen, this is all just wrong. Um, and I think people can do that a lot today. In fact, we do that a lot just even outside of religion. If we have an idea of how something should be and it doesn't end up that way, everyone else is wrong and I'm right. <laughs> um, and we can even extend that to saying, you know, even God is wrong and I'm right. Um, but if you just examine, I think Second Kings chapter 5 is a really helpful story. If you just examine that story, if Naaman, uh, thankfully Naaman humbles himself and actually submits to what God's instructions are and he's healed, if Naaman would have just gone home, um, he would have died a leper. Uh, because he didn't submit to what God's purpose was and what his will was whenever it was directly told to him because he had all these grander ideas of what could have been done. Um, but Naaman humbles himself and, and submits to God's will. And so we can have all kinds of preconceived expectations. I've talked to a few different people that will say something like this, you know, I just can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, God, if God's like that, I can't believe in that. Um, well, our beliefs and expectations of what God should be doesn't make what God is so. So um, I think that's a helpful story. I think what you just said in the end is, is where a lot of um, um, religious people are today with Christianity is we, we talk about um, 
the the need to read the Bible discerningly. And what people mean by that is when you read something in the Bible about God being an angry God, um, well, God's not angry. And so that was that was put in there by some misunderstanding scribes. Um, you know, we have a better understanding of who God is today than they did then. Or when you read about God being in judgment of something or wanting to send people to hell, um, you know, the God that we worship today doesn't do that. They just didn't have the same kind of clarity we have today. Um, we, we are, we're, we're making our own gods when we do that. Uh, we're, we're establishing uh, an idolatry that looks like Christianity uh, from our society's perspective. But we shouldn't be surprised when God looks different than we are because we recognize that we've had a sinful lifestyle. And so, of course, God's going to be different. We have corrupted our thinking. And so we need to adjust that. And the only way to adjust that is by confronting it with the truth that God reveals. Uh, so I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. These kinds of expectations, we, we still run into them today all the time. Uh, and we've got to continue to challenge ourselves with what God has revealed, uh, which may segue into your next point. In this yeah, next and point. Let's just, go ahead. Uh, so we can get quickly to chart three and go quickly through that. The next point is that Jacob really, really felt his son was dead. His feelings were intense, but that didn't make his son dead. Our feelings are not what determines facts. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, just quickly, we can go through this. And then, Scott, I think you wanted to talk about a, a specific phrase that shows up in the scripture and how people misuse that. Um, but, you know, those are all kinds of different ways that we can be misled, assuming we know what God's will is, having preconceived ideas, uh, led by our emotions, all kinds of different things. How do we know then what God expects from us if we if we don't rely on miracles, if uh, all those other ways can mislead us? How can we know God's will today, 21st century? Um, and it's got to start with his word. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul kind of discusses in that chapter a little bit of kind of his role as an apostle and revealing the will of God and speaking uh, for him. And in Ephesians 3 and verse 4, he's talking about um, revealing the mystery that God has revealed of kind of bringing people into the church, bringing the Gentiles into the church. And uh, he says, when you read this, talking about the letter that Paul, the apostle is writing, says, when you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Uh, and then he goes on to tell what that mystery is. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, which is this new idea in the first century. But Paul kind of lays out really plainly there. If you want to know the mysteries of God, you want to know what God is doing, what his purposes are, read what his apostles and prophets have revealed. <laughs> Look in his word. When you read it, you can know what God has planned and what he's doing and into the mind of God and all those sorts of things. You don't have to do all this guesswork. He's given it to you right in the scripture. Uh, in the Bible. And another quick offshoot of that in the scriptures as well, God sometimes just comes out directly and says something. Other times he gives examples of like how to do certain things. Um, uh, one really clear uh, place to see that in scriptures in John chapter 13, when Jesus is uh, into the last week of his life and he washes his disciples' feet and he tells them after he washes their feet, um, you know, do you understand what I've just done for you? <laughs> I have given you an example 
of how servanthood looks. If I am the, the Lord and master, like you say that I am, and I got done and washed your feet, what should you do for each other? Um, and so looking at the example of Christ and how Christ lived his life, I think it's so helpful that we have four different accounts of Jesus's life from four different perspectives of different men of looking at what would it be like if God was a man? Well, here it is. <laughs> um, if, you want, if you want to be like God, be like Jesus and follow his example and, and follow through with that. Um, and then from the teachings and revelations that God has given in his word, um, make those, those principles and those applications of what God has given. The example of Peter in Acts chapter 10, whenever Peter sees the vision of the, the sheet being let down with all these unclean animals and God tells him, go ahead and eat. And Peter says, no, <laughs> I can't do that. I've never eaten anything unclean. When, he, when Peter finally gets to, because he's confused about that vision and that revelation from God, it's not what he expected. When he finally gets to Cronius's house, he's finally connected the dots and realized, okay, God has shown me not to call things unclean that he's called clean. And that doesn't just apply to the animals and the sheep. <laughs> that applies to people too. And so that applies to Cornelius and his household because God sent me here. Um, and so that principle that Peter learned in Acts 10 was if God says it, even if it doesn't make sense to me, it's true. Uh, and so I need to stick with God's will. So those are just maybe some really general principles to apply to figuring out God's word using scripture. Do you guys have thoughts or, or anything you want to add to some of those things? Justin, anything? Just, just one uh, here. I, I think this is absolutely right. Um, you know, Jesus Himself asked, you know, "Have you not read in the Scriptures? How, do, how does it read to you?" Um, when, when we doubt that we can read the Scriptures and come to a common understanding, we're not doubting people. We're really doubting God. That God has the ability to communicate in the way that His creatures understand. Uh, but I think I just uh, suggest one one addition to this list. Um, there are a number of passages that I think indicate we should be um, talking with other people about God's will. Uh, and then a lot of times when people ask, what's God's will? We, we may mean, okay, theologically, what's God's will for the church? What, what's God's plan? What, what, how do I be saved? We have you know, things like that. But a lot of times we mean like, what is God's will? What job should I get? You know, where should I live? Who should I marry? We're talking about specifics. And we, we want information like that. And we, we may not get an answer in specifics in the Bible. I'm not going to open up scriptures and it says, thou shalt move to Detroit. Like it's just, it's not there. Um, however, there's another principle in Proverbs 15.22, where Proverbs 15.22 says, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. And so if I am seeking God's will through his revealed will, through the scriptures, and, and you are, and other people are, then I can lay out my uh, decision, my, my uh, question to other people, and I can be humble enough to listen to their wisdom. And if I reject all of their wisdom, like you said before, and everybody else is wrong, and I'm right, uh, I think I'm showing myself to be a fool, um, and I'm rejecting the counsel that God, by his grace, provides through his people. And I'm not saying that's inspired, right. but I think I need to be humble to listen to it. Because if I'm, if I'm not, uh, then I'm kind of growing stiff-necked and stubborn. I'm hardening my heart against wisdom, which leads in a really bad, sinful direction. So counsel with other people is really helpful, too. Yes, very, very helpful. They're not inspired. Right. But it's a great benefit. By listening to other people 
and, and by looking at the examples of other people who've applied the scriptures into their lives successfully, uh, yes. you know, we looked at each other for some practical application and advice without mistaking them for being invaluable and inspired. So summing up a few things here, just the importance of the word, let's remind ourselves, John 8, 31, Jesus said, if uh, you will truly be my disciples, if you remain where? Like my word. My word. In John 12, the unbelievers are going to be judged by the word that Jesus spoke. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, if you hear these words of mine and do them, your house is built on the rock. If you hear these words of mine and don't do them, you know, your house is going to be destroyed. It's the word that is the authority. The Bereans were noble because they listened to what Paul said, but then they checked the scriptures daily, seeing if those things were so. However, in reacting to Pentecostalism and a subjectivism, sometimes people overstate things. And they say things like, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in any way except through the Word. Well, it puts a couple of things in Romans 8 that clearly say the Holy Spirit does. He intercedes for us in our prayers. Yeah, yeah. That's not revealing truth to us. That's interceding in our prayers. So the Holy Spirit does that. Also says he's active in our resurrection from the dead. And what if a person says God only reveals himself through the word? How is that an overstatement? Well, that's not even what the word itself says. Yeah. The word itself in Romans 1 says God has revealed himself through the things that are created. Yeah, his power. So by looking at what he created, we can see the creator's power. By looking at creation, can we see that Jesus is the Messiah or that he rose from the dead? or that we should take the Lord's Supper. No, we don't see his instructions uh, in identification of the Messiah, but we can see that, that there is a God. And there's some moral implications can also be seen from Romans 2, the Gentiles have. Uh, so I want to I do a couple of things here in our remaining minutes. First one is, I'm going to share a screen here. I want to remind ourselves of this verse from Deuteronomy 29. What belongs to the Lord? Secret things, the unrevealed. Yeah. And what belongs to us? The revealed things. Yeah, yeah. And so there's revelation, because it's not our business to know everything. That's kind of the point of some of what God says to Job toward the end of that book. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, let's take a quick look. I'm having trouble with here with my... Um, well, and, and Scott, while well, well, you're getting to your chart, um, that passage Deuteronomy 29, 29, um, there's a lot of peace in that. I'm, I'm not re responsible for anything that God hasn't revealed, I, I, but I am responsible for what he has revealed, but I don't need to worry myself or to grow anxious about things that I just don't know because God hasn't told me. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 lays the burden on us. But it's not an unbearable burden. It's it's just right. So just yes. it, it, there's a lot of peace there. Yes, and and I think Philip and the eunuch illustrate this pretty pretty strongly. So how does in verse twenty six how does Philip know to go to the road to Gaza? 
Yeah, Acts eight twenty six says an angel of the Lord told Philip, "Yeah, go to this road." And, and he communicated it with words. Says direct. <laughs> Boom. So he arose and went. And there's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, and he comes to Jerusalem to worship. He's returning, and what is he doing? He's reading, He's reading scripture. scripture. Good for him. What's he paying attention to? Scripture. Uh, how does Philip know to join himself to that chair? Because God tells him, Spirit tells him, go join that chair. Yeah, yeah. And he used to work. <laughs> uh, and so Philip ran, and Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he doesn't. And he invites Philip to come sit with him, which comes back to in a multitude of counselors. You know, he knows he doesn't understand. Maybe this fellow can give him some insight. And here's the passage he's reading. And then the eunuch said to Philip, who is he talking about? I, this is one of my favorite verses. Somebody read 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Yeah. So do we know how Philip knew to go to this road? Yes. Yes. Do. do we know how Philip knew to join himself to that chair? Yes. Uh, do we know how the eunuch happened to be in Isaiah 53? Not a clue. No. Yeah. Would you guys, understanding that there is the providence of God, would you guys be inclined to suspect that God arranged for him to be in Isaiah 53? It's very convenient. Sense. Yes. What conceivable means could God have used to get him in Isaiah 53? There's a, a ton. What are some things that God, the almighty creator of the universe, what are some means he could have used to get we, Philip, it's revealed to be there. But we don't see any conversation to the eunuch saying, eunuch, buy a scroll of Isaiah. Eunuch, be reading Isaiah 53. Eunuch, ask this man to join you. We don't have that. What might God have done? I mean, the Maybe. eunuch might have gone to Jerusalem uh, and bought a scroll of Isaiah there. He's, he's got money. It's expensive. He's on this long road trip, and so it's some reading because you know he's he, he can't sleep on this bumpy ride, and so he's trying to keep his mind occupied, and he's tired of doing the queen's taxes, and so he pops open the scroll, and there you are. Yeah. Could, could God have used a conversation to lead to this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could have used weather to make sure that he was at the right spot at the right time? Yeah. Could he have used angels somehow? Could he have used yeah. the Holy Spirit? Could he have, God could have done all sorts of things. Does it matter which of those God used? No. Does, does eunuch end up figuring out exactly how God arranged for him to be at that verse? No. Because that's not important. Coming back to right. Deuteronomy 29, what belongs to God? Secret things. What's important is that when God sent the message to Philip, Philip obeyed. And when Isaiah, when the eunuch is reading, he's reading Isaiah. And then when he learns what Isaiah means, he says what? <clears throat> what prevents me from being baptized? Yeah, and he obeys the word. That's what's important. Any comments on that? It, it, it comforts me a great deal to know 
that God uh, is is ruling over, is able to, I mean, 1 Corinthians 10 comes to mind where it talks about God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Well, how's he going to do that if he's only working through his word? I mean, Satan's not reading the Bible trying to figure out, oh, how do I obey God here? Make sure that I'm not good. Like, as best I know, that's not happening. Um, but he is controlling circumstances and he is directing our path. We get to choose where we walk. And so he's not violating our free will, but he is providing opportunities for us to do the right thing and providing protection should we want not to do the wrong thing. So it's just really uncomfortable. And whatever is up there in the unseen realm, the secret things, we don't need to know how it's all working and just trust in God who knows how to take care of those things. And it's our job to listen to what he told us to do. Let him do his job. Let us do our job. So with that in mind, let's quickly take a look at this PowerPoint. Um, share the screen. And if you want to see this PowerPoint and review it later, uh, if you'll go to 3MinuteBibleStudy.com, uh, you can see that. Uh, all right, so this is led by the Spirit, Romans 8, Galatians. led by the spirit our audience may know hear language like this if you feel led so somebody says which college are you going to go to uh, well i'm waiting to see where the spirit leads me what what are you going to major in well i haven't felt led yet uh which time are you going to take led i had just felt led by the spirit to go to the southern burger place two contrasts the difference between led by the Spirit and felt led by the Spirit. Um, one of these is in Scripture. Which one of those is in Scripture? The first one. Here in the yeah, led by the Spirit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's things people felt, but the phrase led by the Spirit is used in the New Testament. The difference between the unrevealed will of God and the revealed will of God, this is very important to understand. So, led by the Spirit. If we do a blue letter Bible search for led by the Spirit, it shows up several times. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, and then twice, speaking of Christians, it says led by the Spirit. Romans 8 and Galatians 5. That's it. All right? Now, uh, so two times it's used of Christians. Romans 8, Galatians 5. Now, let's go with felt led. Uh, oh, that occurs zero times. Um, and this is, uh, this is from the Babylon Bee. Everything local man feels led to do, he coincidentally really likes. Uh, so, um, instead of, I'm not, we're almost out of time, but you can look up on Babylon Bee and find that old article. Uh, here's something very similar to what Nathan was describing. Um, uh, I'm not going to take time to read those. Uh, so let's get back to this. Look at Romans chapter 8. Uh, it said you were free in Christ, Galatians 4 and 5. Look at all the parallels. Christ has set us free. They both talk about our walk and whether in the flesh or in the spirit, led by the spirit. They both talk about adoption. They both talk about crying, Abba, Father. These are very, very parallel passages, right? Now, notice it's they, they both talk about led and walk. If you leave your dog, you're also taking your dog for a walk, right? Mm -hmm. 
the dog is walking with you, it's being led by you. Um, and if you're led by the spirit, you're gonna walk by the spirit. It's the opposite of walking according to the flesh, gratifying the desires of the flesh. So open your Bible to Galatians 5, and you see that what's walking in the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yeah. What's in, instead of walking in the flesh? What's walking in the flesh? All those works of the flesh, living immorally and for yourself and having strife. And so which of these is a person being led by the spirit? The top one person that it's feeling love, joy, peace, patience, all those fruits. That's walking in the spirit. That's being led by the spirit. It's not whether you go to Burger King or McDonald's. It's whether when you go to Burger King and McDonald's, you act in love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, instead of going in there trying to hook up with somebody for the night or mistreat people or, or, or whatever else. One of those is walking by the flesh, one's walking by the spirit. Somebody says, but what about the Lord's plans? What about providence? Well, this comes back to what we just talked about, the unrevealed will of God versus the revealed. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are given to us. So Joseph's brothers, did they know God was using them to set up what was going to happen? No. The seven years of famine, was that revealed to Joseph? Yes. Yeah. Uh, here's some other things. I'm going to skip those for time. Acts 8, we've already talked about that. Um, let me get to this. Look at James 4. James 4 doesn't say, you shouldn't say tomorrow we're going to go into this town. You should say, if I feel led. That's not what James 4 says. Instead, James 4 said what? Instead of just saying, I am going to spend a year there and I am going to make money, what does James say we should say? If the Lord wills. Yeah. So was it wrong to plan to go to that city? No. Was it wrong to hope to make money? Nope. Was it wrong to aim for a year? Nope. That's not wrong. Just know that if the secret things that belong to God happen to be contrary to your plans, guess what's going to happen? God's will. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here's the revealed will of God. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, enters in the kingdom of heaven, but, but the one that what? Does the will of my does father. Does the will. That's not talking about second guessing the tea leaves that's talking about hearing these words of mine and doing them instead of hearing these words and not knowing them so in god's all-knowing care and providence him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think of to whom we can cast all anxieties on because he cares for you that's great but our limited understanding and perceptions, Joseph's brothers didn't know what God's plan was. Job's three friends thought they knew, but they didn't. And Paul says to Philemon, hey, perhaps this happened for this reason. So it's not our job to know all God's plans. It is our job to trust him and obey him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in connection with that, Scott, um, just one last thing for me here. Um, We've been talking about Romans 8. You're talking about being led by the Spirit. One of the things the Spirit's doing is I don't know 
what exactly God's doing in every situation in my life or others' lives. But I can know Romans 8, 28 is that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And he's meaning that if you want to make me look more like Christ, if you want to put more fruit of the spirit in me, help me to be more like the Lord, uh, God's going to use this circumstance um, to help me to do that. So I don't know exactly what all God's doing in my life sometimes, but I know the, the end goal. I know, I know his ultimate aim is to make me uh, like Jesus by leading me by the spirit. And in Romans 8, the section on led by the spirit, I'll close with just reading this, verse 12. This is Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh, walking in the works of the flesh. For you live after this flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. That's the context of led by the spirit there. It's rejecting the sins of the flesh, putting to that to death, and submitting to being walking in love, patience, peace, uh, joy, long-suffering, self-control, and, and doing what we're told in the Word. Yeah, so obviously, I mean, there's a lot that we can talk about when we're talking about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit and what He's done, what He's doing, uh, and those different things. So, um Lord willing, uh, next time we'll continue our discussion. We have a few more things that we want to talk about. So to our audience, if you have more specific questions you'd like us to discuss about this topic, uh, about the spirit or uh, any, anything else you'd like us to discuss, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv and we'll be happy to get to those in our future shows. But that's all that we have for this week. And so we'll plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.